Amen. Well, it's great to be with you here, week three. Uh, As with every week, I'm amazed that I'm back, so clearly I did nothing so wrong last week to be expelled. We'll see how this week goes. Uh, As we're talking about the practices of Jesus in an age of disenchantment, I just want to go back, because each sermon has been somewhat connected. We're on a bit of a journey uh, that is going to continue into next week, which will be my last week with you. In going back, I just want to cover first what we mean by disenchantment. If you remember, I've thrown these three definitions, dictionary definitions up on the screen. I think they're helpful just to clarify what it is we're talking about here. Disenchantment is when we are disappointed by someone or something previously respected or admired, disillusioned. Disenchantment can be when we're no longer believing in the value of something, especially after having learned of the faults that it has. Or disenchantment is just no longer being happy, pleased, or satisfied. This disenchantment is working right now on us on a number of levels. I think for many of us, as we look out on the world, I I don't know about you, uh, as an American, I'm sure you saw it too yesterday though, my news feed was flooded yesterday with post 9-11, 9-11, 20-year remembrances, and I was just struck as I was driving to Redeemer this morning at how disenchanted we are in light of this moment. Uh, my wife and I strangely sat down and watched a documentary on 9-11. I wouldn't recommend this as like a sweet, you know, evening ending, let's sort of settle into bed uh, remembering 9-11, but was just so struck by how powerfully the images of that day for the last 20 years have lingered over us as a society, have lingered over our generations, and have left us in light of all of the confusion and interpretations of the war in Iraq, and especially now the devastation and heartbreak in Afghanistan. It's just left us with this sense of, oh, do we really believe in the value of America anymore. I can say that as an American, right? Uh, It's fine. No one's going to kick me out here for that. Uh, Do we really believe? Uh, Are we disenchanted? But it's not just politics. It's certainly more than that. Disenchantment is sort of there in the waters of our faith right now. It's this pervading sense in which we're not sure coming out of lockdown, for many of us who have been so disconnected from the church, have even been disconnected here from Redeemer, we're just not sure what it is we're walking back into. How do we return to God? How do we return to our faith? How do we return to our community? How do we pick up these rhythms of life again? So my hope is that beginning at first week's, uh, the first practice we went over last week, I want to I propose to you the way of Jesus, the practices of Jesus, as a means to return, as a means to recover your faith. And last week we talked about prayer, this first practice of Jesus, prayer as a means of embodied attention to God. One of the great challenges, even as I bring up something like 9-11, is that we are so disorientingly distracted right now in our culture. There are so many worries, concerns, and questions bombarding us, and so prayer, prayer is this first step back to faith as we, through our bodies, focus our attention on God as we return to what it looks like to attune to God's voice and to abide in God's presence throughout our day. Okay, that's where we've been. Where are we going this morning? I want to talk to you about the second practice of Jesus that is fasting. So uh, just to be very clear, I have stacked these intentionally knowing that if I started with fasting, 
I probably wouldn't have made it all the way here to week three. Uh, I even gave a little bit of an intro here, so no one is allowed to sneak out now pretending like they are involved in the children's ministry downstairs uh, as I continue with a convicting word on fasting. Here's the thing about fasting. I hate fasting. I just hate it. I know every single person in this room hates fasting. I was an anti-faster for a very long time in my faith. I never would have tried it and never would have practiced it. But a few years ago, I, through a community, was invited into this practice, and I have found that fasting is really up there with prayer as the practice, the practice in a disenchanted age that helps reconnect me to my body, connect my faith to my body, and help reconnect me to God. So I have about 20 minutes to offer you a vision and reason why fasting is the next practice of Jesus to pick up if you're going to recover your faith in an age of disenchantment. So here we go. The first uh, place I need to start us, I'm going to draw our attention to two bigger stories that are going on that we're actually living in right now. The first story uh, is going to involve a conversation partner that I really have a lot of respect for. I've been leaning into and listening to a lot recently. His name is Yuval Noah Harari. Have you ever read Yuval Noah Harari, seen his works? He particularly has this book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humanity. Uh, this is his second book up on screen, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. The reason why Yuval Noah Harari is really interesting to me is that he's an Oxford-trained historian who is Israeli, so he lives in Israel, and Harari likes to look at the big picture and ask big questions. I like that. Now, Harari himself is an atheist. He's part of this new movement of atheists that would be very focused on history and science and sort of an agnostic approach to any kind of faith. That's all right. I'm open to hearing what Harari has to say. And interestingly here on this conversation, this question, Harari and I are totally synced up in our concern. Harari, as he looks at the sweep of human history, is going to note that we find ourselves in a particular cultural moment that he says is the culture of more. The culture of more. So what Harari does as a historian is he looks back and he notices human history for a long time was not necessarily living in a culture of more. In fact, most of human history, we were connected to work, labor, the means of production, simply by our needs. So as Harari looks back as a historian, if you were living in medieval Europe here in Northern Ireland, you might have been a farmer. In farming, you would have worked your field, you would have grown crops, you would have eaten what you had grown. Hopefully, you would have had a little bit left over that you could trade or perhaps store away for a sort of hard day. But that basically was it. You had what you could grow, and in growing what you had, that was it to meet your needs. You hoped, of course, that you could work and grow enough to meet all of your needs, and if you couldn't, well, you were in trouble. That was the way life was. But a few hundred years ago, Harari noticed that this revolutionary idea set in where particularly bankers, the wealthy, started to realize that they could make this offer to you, this offer that if they would give you more now, more money, then you could promise them to pay them back more later. 
See how that works? More now equals more for them later. And as Harari sits with this, he says, this may be one of the greatest ideas to ever sweep human history because what it did was it unlocked not just your land that you had in front of you now. Oh, no, you could actually, you could buy more now. You could buy more land. You could buy a bigger house. You could buy bigger tools and equipment. You could get more and more and more, all based on this promise that you can just keep paying back more and more and more later. And of course, what Harari's talking about is the system that we all inhabit today, which is the system of capitalism and credit. We all participate, I participate, in the system in which I purchase a car that I cannot afford right now in the moment, but I make a promise, I'll pay you back more later if you let me have more now. Uh, purchase a house that, of course, I cannot afford now in the moment, but I promise you I'll pay you back more later if I can just get more now. And as Harari looks at this, bring up his quotes for you, he says, on the individual level, we are inspired to constantly increase our incomes and our standards of living. Even if you're quite satisfied with your current conditions, you should strive for more. Yesterday's luxuries become today's necessities. If you once lived well in a three-bedroom apartment with one car and a single desktop computer, today you need a five-bedroom house with two cars and a host of iPods, tablets, and smartphones. He continues, for the individual, this results in high levels of stress and tension. After centuries of economic growth and scientific progress, life should have become calm and peaceful, at least in the most advanced countries. If our ancestors knew what tools and resources stand ready at our command, they would have surmised that we must be enjoying celestial tranquility, free of all cares and worries. The truth is very different. Despite all our achievements, we feel a constant pressure to do and produce even more. Perhaps as I talk about this culture of more, this pressure for more, even as Harari sort of wrestles with it, he acknowledges it's actually this craving. It's like this hunger each of us have for more. Perhaps you would say, as you think about your life, I mean, clearly you see it, right? We, we all see the, the excess, the luxuries around us, that pressure for more. But you, you could resist those pressures. I mean, you don't live in a culture of, of more. You... You, are, you just have enough. You're barely getting by. You, you're not driving a fancy car or living in a big house. Well, there's a thought experiment that for some reason I just love. I find this a great practice for all of us uh, to engage. Thought experiment is this. Let's say wherever you're living now, your local council announced this incredible lottery in which they would provide five all paid, all uh, everything included, all expenses paid holiday to the Bahamas. And as they put together this lottery, you think to yourself, I would never, of course, win this lottery. But lo and behold, you discover you, in fact, are a winner. You have been selected for a five-day, all-expenses-paid holiday to the Bahamas. And sort of in amazement, you get on the plane. I mean, it's September. This would be a lovely time, wouldn't it, with the weather right now to go to the Bahamas. You get there for that first day, and you really think to yourself, this is it. What more is there. You're on the beach. You have this lovely room that looks out on the ocean. All of your food is wonderful. It's covered. All your drinks are covered. You're in the pool. You're having a great time. 
Truly, this is what all of us are craving. This is what all of us are longing for. This is the more. Well, imagine you wake up on day two. Day two still feels pretty good, doesn't it? I love day two of a holiday. You're just getting settled. You're really starting to figure out the place. You're getting the rhythms. You've got an adventure. You go on. You wake up day three. Wow. I mean, the food is beginning to be just a little bit repetitive, but day three is really great. You're on the beach. You're having fun. You wake up day four. I don't know about you, but day four on a five-day holiday starts to be a little... Uh, there's something there that starts growing in the back of your mind. I always find day four, I start to realize it's going to be day five. And on day five, I'm going to have to get on that plane. I'm going to have, like, I really like it here. I wish I could just keep living here. But, okay, stay focused. Enjoy day four. Well, inevitably, what happens on day five? Day five, you pack up, you get on the plane, and more is done. And as you go home on day five, your face with that insatiable desire that if only you could have had more of that, that free gift you never even deserved in the first place, then maybe, just maybe you would be satisfied. Now, if you still are resistant to me, if you just happen to be one of the more godly people than myself, who on day five of your holiday, you're like, that was great, loved it, ready to go home, let's get back to work. My last thought experiment is this. Imagine on day five as you return home, you discover that the council had actually had additional lotteries and that your neighbor, who you knew really didn't deserve it, I mean, they barely pay their taxes, your neighbor won a 10-day holiday that was all expenses paid. Harari's summary, as he looks at the culture of more, this culture that all of us live in, is he says, this wheel, this wheel of capitalism, of consumption, of more, this wheel will never stop rotating, at least not according to capitalism. We will never reach a moment when capitalism says, that's it, enough growth, we can now take it easy. Harari in his book is going to say this pressure for more is one of the great concerns we face societally, and I agree with him. I think this is really one of the questions that our world is wrestling with now. When is more going to turn into enough? And unfortunately, I've read through Harari's books, Harari doesn't have an answer. I, I mean, he, he looks out and goes, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say in response to this problem. I don't know how to address it. Now, thankfully, as I uh, want to take you into another story, I just want to point out that rather than being a fully unique problem to 21st century Western civilization, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, all the way back in the ancient world, knew exactly what Harari was talking about as he addressed the culture of more. Ecclesiastes 6-7 says this, all man's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite, the hunger, is never satisfied. The truth is, you and I live with cravings that are causing us, driving us to go out and to work every day. And I get those cravings. I want to do the holiday in the Bahamas. I want to drive a nice car and live in a bigger house. And yet, yet Ecclesiastes looks out and says, every time you eat, you're still hungry. The appetite is never satisfied. So where do we look? Where do we turn? How could the scriptures and how could Jesus offer us a vision for a practice that would let us address 
this craving for more that our culture is filled with. Well, here's the second story I want to take you through. I'm going to try to move quickly and briefly. We could spend a lot of time on this. I want to take you to the Bible and food. Have you ever pondered this before? Uh, this, these were new insights for me as I was wrestling with fasting, as I was trying to sort of unpack what the story of the Bible would have to say when it came to this call to fast. Interestingly, when you return all the way to the garden, what we discover is that the first sin had to do with food in our stomachs. Have you ever pondered that? So Genesis 2, 16 to 17, the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you will surely die. I mean, think about this for just a second. Adam is there in the garden, and his stomach is hungry because all of our stomachs get hungry. This is how our bodies work. And God places him in an environment where his, uh, his hunger can be satisfied. There is good food waiting for him. But one tree, one gift, one blessing is restricted, is, is cut off from Adam. And he's told, resist one impulse, one urge, and you can, bless, you can be blessed and flourish. Of course, we know what happens next. Genesis 3.1, we're told the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I'm struck in light of Harari's terminology that the serpent's first temptation is a questioning of the possibility of more. Did you catch it? Is God holding out more on you? Is there not more that God could be giving to you? Isn't this what drives our hunger? Isn't this what drives any of our wickedness and rebellion as we turn against God? This sense, this sort of deep existential angst in which we wonder, is someone getting more than me? Is someone out there able to offer me more than what God could provide? We're told in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The first sin is a sin of our stomachs. The first sin is a sin of food where we eat that which we think might give us more and instead, we are disappointed to realize more was never going to be enough. We jump ahead in the story, moving quick here, from the Garden of Eden to the wilderness. Have you ever pondered this, that if the first sin in the garden was, around, was a sin of stomachs, a hunger that could not be satisfied, well, God has now been on the move Moses has encountered God. Moses has been sent by God. Moses, through God's power, has confronted the ruling oppressor of his day. Pharaoh has been faced by the almighty power of God, and the people who once were enslaved have now been liberated. Salvation has occurred, and yet, when you jump ahead to Exodus 16, verses 2 to 3, we find in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died 
by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. I am convicted every time I read these words because I feel that insatiable hunger that would cause me to grumble against the God who had just saved me. In fact, that sense of hunger, the sense that pots maybe were once full back then, that even though the conditions were really, really bad, even though the oppressors ruled over every aspect of my life, at least my belly was full at the end of the night when I could eat the meat and the food they provided. That, too, is our struggle. We live in a culture that tells us more is possible. We continue to turn to that culture thinking that something they offer us might be able to satisfy the hunger within us. It doesn't. We're left stranded, and then maybe we turn to God. Maybe we have this wisdom moment where we realize culture wasn't going to be enough, but as soon as our stomachs are hungry again, we start to wonder, was it not maybe better back there under the culture of more that offered us at least a few good things? I love in Exodus 16, the Lord is going to say to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the Israelites. Tell them... At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. What we see happening here is that the Lord, in his mercy, understands the needs, the hunger needs of your soul. The Lord actually understands the physical needs of the Israelites' bodies, And so what the Lord is going to do is enter into this faith system with the Israelites that becomes so intentional for the people of God as they move throughout the scriptures. This system is is one in which the Israelites at night will have meat provided for them and in the day will find bread waiting for them and it will only be enough food for that day. In fact, they're told don't try to gather up extra don't collect anymore the time they do. They find it just all rots. The Lord is telling the Israelites, says, you will have enough food for your stomachs, but you're going to have to trust every day that I am going to be the one to provide it and every night that I will be enough for you tomorrow. In fact, what we find in Israel, in the wilderness, is that the craving for more can only be satisfied by the God who is enough, the God of enough. God is going to train Israel for 40 years in what it looks like to walk with him as the one who is enough. So we're told, Exodus 16.30, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Can you imagine how it would shape your imagination, your faith, if every night you went to bed with your refrigerator empty and every day, the next day, you had to trust that the Lord was going to provide the food you would have for that day. This is actually at the heart of our faith. This is actually at the heart of where we all bail on God. And this is why it's so important. If you look across the scriptures, food is there. 
at every point as this pressure point in our physical bodies where this hunger, this appetite, this craving for more is constantly, constantly being tempted, being whispered to, that it could be satisfied somewhere else. And God is constantly trying to bring us back to tell us, I will feed you, but you have to trust that I alone am enough. Can you imagine 40 years of walking in faith with God, trusting that only he will provide what you need? Here's where Jesus comes into the story, and this is where I'm going to bring us together, but uh, if I didn't connect these dots, then you'd be missing out on why the scriptures truly are just endlessly fascinating and rich. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, if you go to any of the Gospels, you find this incredible scene take place, and uh, until I sat down to work through the practices of Jesus and was thinking about fasting in Jesus, I actually had this question. Did, did Jesus, like, was Jesus regularly fasting? I know he sort of talks about his disciples aren't fasting, and uh, what was, is, there, is this even there in the scriptures? And I, of course, almost forgot. Yes, Jesus did fast. Jesus actually began his whole ministries with the very memorable fast. But if you're tracking with the story of the Bible, it's even bigger than Jesus just doing a nice spiritual discipline. What happens in Luke 4, verses 1 to 2, is that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted, or your Bible might actually even say being tested by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. I really wish there were some more exciting, more high-fluting, more new-agey, mystical access to a third dimension practice that I was here to offer you. But instead, what I find, what I'm humbled by, is that Jesus faced the same bodiliness that we were facing, and he knew if he was going to start his ministry in power and in faith, he knew he would first have to feel, he would have to engage the daily grind of hunger. It was that physical and that ordinary. When you are hitting that 11 a.m. hour, you start to feel your stomach rumble. Jesus said, I know I need to lean in and face that force, that power. And as Jesus faced it, we're told the devil comes, this echo all the way back to the garden, and the devil's going to give him three offers, three bids. And if you can trust my preacher need to connect all of these things. I just want to note, these are three bids for more, right? More food, the devil first offers. He's going to say, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. I mean, the devil gets that the first way to attack any person of faith is to just go after the fact that they're always hungry. What if you could eat now, the devil says to Jesus. Jesus is going to answer, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil then leads him up to a high place, shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. He says to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone if I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Essentially, the devil is saying, Jesus, do you want more power? And Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Finally, in Luke's gospel, the devil leads him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here. More safety, the sense in which the very risk of pain and suffering and death itself could be overcome. And Jesus answers, do not put the Lord your God to the test. At every one of those invitations, what, what Jesus responds with is a faith that says, I believe that God is enough. I believe that God is enough for me to continue in my hunger. I believe that God is enough when it comes to the power that I possess in my life. I believe when it comes to my safety that God is enough. What I want to offer to you then is that fasting... Fasting becomes a radical. It truly is radical. There's no good reason for you to just start fasting on your own, on your own accord. Instead, fasting is a radical act of defiance to a culture of more in which you say, I believe in the God who is enough. And so for today, in whatever way I'm fasting, I believe God will be enough. Now, I realize fasting at this point, as I've commended it to you, might just start to sound intriguing, but fasting is quite difficult to figure out. I'm sure at this point you're already trying to work through, like, okay, so do I just stop eating now? Is this like a, do I just try to go 40 days and 40 nights? Let me give you two practical fasts and a prayer practice to accompany them just as real on the ground, what could this look like together as a community? Um, I was encouraged, coach, the breakthrough for me when it came to fasting is that I have always struggled skipping dinnertime meals. Uh, their dinner meals are so social, particularly if you're working in a family or roommate context. Uh, some of you may not have social dinners, and so dinners might be an easier time to fast, but I just always found that fasting at meal times, at dinner time especially, was very disruptive. And so my encouragement to get started if you're intrigued by food fasting, is to start with a 24-hour window. So the night before, you stop eating snacks, food, whatever's sort of there at night that you might munch on before you go to bed. And then it's breakfast and lunch. And the first time you do this, you will not enjoy it. I can promise you. It, uh, I've uh, worked with pastorally a number of people, a lot of different ages, who have tried fasting for the first time as we've been working with it. And about 60% of the people uh, talk to me the next week and say, yeah, so I gave up after breakfast. Um, gonna be honest with you, breakfast was too hard around 11 a.m. I decided, nope, don't care, uh, I'm out. My faith doesn't mean that much to me. I don't need to talk to John again. Uh, he's not that important to me either. Let's just move on from this whole thing. And that is totally okay. Uh, I just wanna give you grace and permission to experiment, to try, and if anything, what you find as you attempt this first 24-hour fast, 7 p.m., you stop eating snacks the night before, the next morning, you just intentionally set breakfast as a meal you move through. I mean, you drink a cup of tea, a cup of coffee. Um, you can have juice if that would be helpful to you. I know a lot of different people go a lot of different directions with this. But what you find in that first moment of resistance is that your body is resisting your need to depend on the God of enough. 
right? That your body's actually telling you, I am hungry, I need food, you need to feed me. And you realize your body is actually controlling you a lot more than any of us would like to acknowledge. Yet, as you work through even just one meal, what you find is that as bodily impulses surface to eat, just to put food in your mouth, to return to the comfort that food can offer, you start to find there is this muscle within your soul that is capable of having faith and resisting that impulse. This is where the Holy Spirit is working. Uh, it's really helpful to connect those moments of physical hunger to a spiritual sense of where you are. I find if I'm not thinking of God as I'm feeling hungry, then the fast is going to be really, it will almost feel nonsensical to maintain. Yet, as that war begins to happen, what really surfaces for me, I almost immediately find all of my stuff just welling up within me. I start to find all my resistances. I start to realize how much I love comfort, how much I distract myself with food. I find how just easy rituals throughout my day actually help me avoid paying attention to God most of the time. And this radical act of disruption where food is taken out of my daily ritual becomes a profound moment of spiritual assessment. So you've got uh, those couple of points up there. Consider a 24-hour fast. Engage prayer during the mealtimes. Connect physical hunger to spiritual hunger and assess spiritual needs before God. If you've never tried it this week, my practical encouragement to you, this is really bold, uh, but I'm only here one more week, so what do I have to lose? Uh, this upcoming Wednesday is a day just to consider. There's no pressure. There's no uh, spiritual elitism. If you do or you don't, uh, but this Wednesday, I will be fasting for you as a church and would love to invite you to fast with me 24 hours. The second fast, so I realize food fasting is complicated. There's health issues for some people. There's body image issues for other people. There's uh, just anxiety that might be welling up within you as I talk about food fasting. So here's my second one. And I think after I get to the end of this one, you may actually go back and go, ah, food fasting, maybe I should go with that one. Uh, the second fast is a phone fast. And I just want you to consider 24 hours, 24 hours, 7 p.m. to 7 p.m., or of course shorter, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., where you physically turn off your phone, physically turn it off. And of course, uh, it's helpful in that window if you're fasting. I know social media is really at the heart of what most of us are distracted on our phones with, uh, TV, Netflix, entertainment, uh, whatever it is, turn it off for that window as well. Now, what I have found whenever I talk to people about a phone fast is that immediately, if I were to ask you, yeah, so just turn your phone off for 24 hours, immediately you would have at least three people, re normally reasons, why you can't turn off your phone. You go, oh, no, 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 you, you don't understand. My, see, my mother, she has a health issue, and I've got to have my phone, and I just want to be available to her. Or my kids, you know, they'll be in school during that time, and I just need to make sure. Or, you know, I have a pretty strong following on uh, Instagram or TikTok. They need to know where I am and what I'm doing. And as you hit those resistant points, again, I, I think there's something really powerful in considering a phone fast where even if it's just, I, I realize a lot of us really do have very legitimate reasons why our phones are on. Even if it's just a shorter window, even if there's a little bit of work you have to do, maybe uh, mom does a phone fast and tells the kids dad's on call. Maybe uh, a brother does the phone fast and says, hey, my sister's on call in case something goes down. What you find is that there's a sense in which our phones make us think we actually are the saviors, the connectors, 
the facilitators of our world, right? Our phones extend our access to everything. And when we consider turning our phones off, even for 24 hours, we're confronted with our own temptation to be more to everyone, to have more, to be connected to more. And if, if for even 24 hours, you can turn off your phone, you will find yourself confronting all of those temptations, and yet you'll also find this muscle strengthening within you where you get to practice and pray, I believe in the God who is enough. So as you turn off social media, TV, engage God in silence and boredom, you can assess the spiritual fears that are welling up within you. Uh, the final encouragement to you is that I've found in fasting, if fasting from a phone or fasting from prayer, or fasting from food or fasting from your phone, that a prayer practice is really helpful. Just concretely, practically, if I'm just sitting at a table thinking about not eating, it's pretty miserable. But if I get up and go on a walk during breakfast, if I intentionally reach out to a coworker to say, hey, what if I'm gonna just go on a walk during this uh, lunch window? If you wanna come with me, come, you can come eat with me, uh, whatever you need to do. Those are helpful ways to just move out of your daily rhythm and find opportunities to pray intentionally, to bring either your gut needs before God, that's where fasting really starts to become a spiritual discipline that you start to pray more deeply because you're hungry and where you also can begin to intercede for others, to intercede for your community, for your city. This Wednesday, I want to be interceding for you. So as I offer that to you, I'm going to just close this in prayer and we're going to turn to a final closing uh, gathering of worship together. But let me first have you just close your eyes in prayer wherever you're at. And as you just take a deep breath in and take a deep breath out, I find that something as concrete as fasting, though it's really simple, can actually surface a lot of bodily anxiety. And so as you just take a, a breath in and take a breath out as we are in the presence of the Lord together, I just wonder, where are you feeling the resistance where does the culture's message of more feel weighty in your life? Where is there this sense that you do feel anxious when it comes to the thought of relinquishing food, relinquishing your phone, relinquishing more? As you sit with that, I just want to return you to Jesus in your imagination, in your mind's eye, in your spirit, and I just want to invite Jesus to comfort you as the God who faced into his own hunger, the God who faced the test of the wilderness. And I do want to encourage you and pray a blessing over you that the goal of fasting is not to prove yourself spiritually worthy because, in fact, that spiritual worth has already been accomplished by the Son of the living God. Jesus has faced our hunger for us. Jesus was tested and succeeded where we all have failed. And Jesus wandered the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights so you no longer would have to. So wherever your anxieties are, I just want to give you one moment where Jesus can speak to you and comfort you as we prepare to return to Jesus' table.
Thank you, Lord. I pray that this week, for any who are bold enough to lean into this practice, whether it's with food or their phone or something else, Lord, that you would meet them powerfully. You would meet them in their hunger, and yet you, O oh Lord, our Christ, who walked the wilderness for us, would also meet us with enough, the enough that you have already accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm very aware as we're about to turn to the table and Dan is going to come up, that I would be remiss if I didn't connect you to the realization that if food was the act, the first act of our sin, if our hunger, that deep hunger was the first temptation that pulled us away from God, uh, I had a pastor who used to say it was in the Garden of Eden, in taking, that the world fell apart. Well, here at the table, it is going to be in receiving the living bread, the living cup, the body and blood of Jesus, that your true hungers, your true spiritual, physical needs can be addressed. So as we come now to this table, may you realize even as you consider intentionally connecting to your own hunger, that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be invited to the feast. And this is just a glimpse and a taste that in Jesus Christ, God has been enough. So may we eat and feast together.